Chapter 2 The Making of a Madame My impulsive quest for basic training as a madame was a real shoestring operation. Telling my mother I was going to spend the weekend with friends, I set out from Miss May's house in Clarksville with a battered suitcase containing a few delicate undies, cosmetics, and my best silk black evening dress. $3.50 in my purse and an optimistic hope that the famous Tennessee brothel keeper would somehow help me solve my seemingly insoluble financial problems. After investing $2 of my bankroll for a round-trip ticket to Clarksville and selling a new pair of silk hoisery and a bottle of perfume, items I stuffed into my purse as a hedge against total bankruptcy, to a kindly gentleman on a train, I arrived in Tennessee with the pricely sum of $4.00. Leaving the depot, I realized that, beyond an address, I had no idea where Miss May's house was located. Reluctant to brazenly inquire about the location of such an establishment, I decided I had no choice but to take a taxi and risk the chance that I'd have enough to pay the fare. For all I knew, my destination could be miles out into the country. Recklessly, I climbed into the only cab in front of the train station and directed the driver to take me to 1116 College Street. I was positive that the address by itself would not reveal the kind of place I was visiting, but I was mistaken. Upon hearing the address, the taxi driver, who displayed little or no interest in me when I entered the cab, turned quickly and submitted both me and my suitcase to a long, disconcerting stare. Then apparently he deciding that his ears had deceived him, he asked, You mean Miss May's house? That's right, I said, hoping once my dark secret had been discovered that I sounded like a self-confident woman of the world. The driver turned silently, started the motor, and off we went with a clashing of gears. But as the blocks flashed by, I could sense that the cabbie was staring at me in the rearview mirror with puzzled disbelief. Finally, he could contain his curiosity no longer. "'Pardon me, ma'am,' he blurted, "'but you don't sure look like one of Miss May's girls.' Still self-conscious about my oversized proportions, I didn't know whether to view this as an insult or to feel flattered that I didn't look like a lady of easy virtue. Deciding it would be foolish to take offense at this bit of snooping, I brushed aside his remark by coolly replying, Oh, I'm not one of the girls. I'm just a friend of Miss May. Well, she's a mighty fine woman, the driver observed, seeming to be satisfied with my explanation. A few minutes later, we turned off a quiet street into a winding driveway that meandered through dense clumps of shrubbery and trees to, large, to a large, stately house atop a hill. Good Lord, I thought as we stopped in front of the two-story house, set like a precious gem in the midst of a broad green lawn, terrace gardens, and a large lily-bedecked pool. This must be the wrong place. Surely this isn't a whorehouse. Quite a place, isn't it? The driver remarked as he accepted the fare, plus tip, and helped me out of the taxi, a courtesy which, I noted, he'd not shown me when an unknown female toting a big suitcase I'd struggled into his cab a few minutes earlier. Evidently, any friend of Miss May's automatically earned respect in his eyes. For a few moments, I stood surveying the big house in its luxurious setting with awe. Wow, I silently exclaimed. If the wage is a sin or death, this is a mighty fine way to go. Slowly, I picked up my shabby suitcase and climbed the broad steps leading the front door to my first visit to a house of ill repute. A colored maid in a stylish black and white uniform answered the doorbell. Briefly, in the face of such splendor, I felt faint. My knees were as weak as water, and my mouth and lips were as parched as an old spinster's kiss. What, I had wondered desperately, was I going to say in the lady of such a grand house? I'm, I'm Pauline Tabor, I managed to blurt breathlessly. I've come to see Miss May. The maid didn't seem to notice my bumbling, self-conscious introduction. 
She smiled gently, took my suitcase, and said, Oh, yes, Miss May's been expecting you. She's waiting in the library. She turned, and I followed her along a broad, red-carpeted hallway leading to a vast, winding, walnut stairway extending majestically up to the second floor. I was so absorbed in studying my surroundings, a beautifully carved grandfather's clock at the foot of the stairway, a long, dark table with a blue Chinese vase filled with freshly cut flowers, and several tall red upholster chairs along the hallway's walls that I didn't at first notice the slender, gray-haired woman standing in a doorway with her hands outstretched in greeting. "'Hello, honey,' she said in a soft, warm voice, as cultured as her surroundings. "'You must be Pauline.' I could only nod dazedly desperately trying to regain my wits. Miss May seemed to sense my discomfort. She took me by the hand, led me into the library, and seated me on an antique love seat upholstered with blue and gold tapestry. Honey, I've been simply dying to meet you, she exclaimed, seeking to make me feel at home. Ever since that fantastic phone call, I've been trying to picture just what you really like. Well, I said ruefully, finally regaining my tongue. There's quite a bit of me, as you can see. Right now, every pound of me is scared to death. For heaven's sake, why? she asked. I'm not a witch, and not even a bitch very often anymore. I'm just a little old lady running a cat house in a small Tennessee town. Somehow, such blunt language from the lips of a kindly, elderly, and obviously wealthy lady stirred me back to life. That's the problem, I admitted. You're a very successful, very famous madame, and here I am, a Miss Nobody, who's never even been inside a house like this before, thinking that I can make a success out of the same kind of business. The minute I got here and saw this beautiful house, I knew how foolish and simple-minded I must seem to you, and probably am, really. Pauline Tabor, you listen to me, Miss May snapped peevishly. If I thought you were foolish and simple-minded, I never would have invited you to come calling. But listening to you on the phone, I knew it took a lot of old-fashioned guts for you to make a call like that, and guts is something a woman needs and a big supply to make a go of it in this business. So, if you're truly, sincerely interested, I'll do my best to teach you what I know. Believe me, Miss May, I said. I was never more serious in my life, but it's just that I'm overwhelmed. How could I even hope to come close to this? Don't think for a minute I started out with a house like this, Miss May snorted indelicately. Only a millionaire could afford to start out in this high-toned style, and if you've got a million, you don't need to run a whorehouse. But you're surely wealthy, and you're running a whorehouse, I pointed out undiplomatically. Sure I am, she replied. I've been in this lo business longer than I care to remember, and I'd feel lost now if I retired. But when I started out, I was nearly broke, had a small rented house, and I pitched in and helped three girls handle the customers. Money? Nobody had much in those days. Sometimes we'd take eggs, chickens, and produce as pay because we needed food on the table. Miss May sighed as she called a halt to her memories. Enough of that prattling about the old days, she said, rising from her chair. It's time for dinner, and you must be starved after your trip. Come along and meet my girls, and we'll have a long talk later. Miss May must have been approaching sixty then, but as she led me to the dining room that evening, she bounced along as sprightly as a schoolgirl, chattering zestfully about her house and its furnishings. Like any successful merchant, it was plain to see she was mighty proud of her establishment. The chandelier dining room was decorated and furnished in excellent taste, but its regal atmosphere was overshadowed by the beauty of the eight girls who already were seated at a long, formally set dining table. Blonde, brunette, and redhead, tall, petite, and medium height, slender and pleasingly plump, Miss May's high-class line of merchandise obviously had been carefully selected to offer a variety of choices to even the most discriminating customers. 
Seeing this array of female talent, it was immediately evident why my brief venture as a professional had been a flop. A woman of my dimension certainly couldn't compete in the sex market with beauty like beauties like these. My instincts had been right, I thought. My only chance for success in the oldest profession was a career as a madame, merchandising younger, more exotic female flesh. Having never had, to my knowledge, any previous contact with a professional prostitute, I didn't know what to expect when I met Miss May's girls. All were properly and tastefully dressed, all had good manners, and their conversations at the table were the typical female chit-chat, as free of vulgarities and profanity as a get-together of proper young matrons at a country club luncheon. In brief, my preconceived mental picture of a prostitute as a coarse, sin-hearted woman, with the marks of her trade clearly visible in her face and her manners quickly faded. Out in public, even in the finest of society, there wasn't a girl at the table who would be recognized as a fallen woman. Later, I mentioned my, my sense of shocked amazement to Miss May, telling her my discovery that not a single of her girls looked like a whore. Miss May immediately set my thinking straight. A whore and a prostitute are two completely different breeds of pussycat, she said. A whore is a cheap chippy with a big itch who will spread her legs for anything in pants without thinking about what she'll get in return. But a prostitute is a professional. She knows what she's doing and why she's doing it. She has pride in herself and pride in her abilities, and she expects to be paid, and paid well for her services. If you get into this business, get rid of any whores that end up in your house. They're nothing but trouble, and they lower the class of your operation. As the years went by, I learned through some mighty unpleasant experiences to appreciate and even expand upon the wisdom of Miss May's sharp distinction between a prostitute and a whore. A prostitute, I found, is a woman who has learned to look upon sex as a business, and to improve her business works a lot harder than most wives learn to learn the art of pleasing a man in the boudoir. A whore, on the other hand, is a woman whose life is dominated and distorted by the sex urge, and who, in a frantic, futile grasping for fulfillment, gives to the sex act about as much beauty and human warmth as the coupling of two alley cats. However, on that long-ago visit to Clarksville, I learned a lot more than the basic definitions of, to use Miss May's expression, two breeds of pussycat. Lesson number one came shortly after dinner. I'd gone to my upstairs room to change into one my, my one good evening gown, preparatory to spending some time in the big parlor observing the intricacies of the night's trade, when Miss May came knocking at my door. Honey, she said, there's a special friend of mine downstairs, a man who's been a tremendous help to me in my business. He'd be most honored to meet you. Downstairs in the library, a room which I later learned Miss May reserved as her own hideaway in a sometimes hectic house, I was confronted by a mountain of a man dressed in a uniform and sporting a badge. Any doubt about his profession was removed by Miss May, who introduced him as the chief of, chief of police and then left to get the house and girls ready for a long, busy Saturday night. The chief beamed happily down at me from a height of at least six foot four, settled his 300-plus pounds in a big leather upholstered chair, patted the broad plateau of his knees, and beckoned me with a ham-like hand. "'Come over and sit on my lap, little lady, so we can talk a spell,' he boomed. "'Little lady?' Hell, for nearly two years since my illness, I'd been pushing 215 pounds around with the grace of a 10-ton tank. Now suddenly I felt dwarfed as I cautiously perched on the chief's king-size lap like a moppet waiting for the reading of a bedtime story. So you're the little lady who wants to learn how to run a whorehouse, the chief said, caressing my cheek with affectionate pawing that nearly jolted loose a couple of molars. 
I admitted that I was, but my mind really wasn't on the conversation. I was nervously wondering if this refugee from the age of dinosaurs might be harboring some sort of primeval romantic ideas. Really, I said. I'm afraid I'm much too heavy to be sitting here on your lap. Nonsense, he thundered. You're as light as a feather. And he jiggled me up and down on his lap like some giant hobby horse to prove his point. Then he got down to the business at hand, namely the education of Pauline Tabor. Miss May, it seems, had asked him to brief me on the business from a lawman's point of view. The first thing you've got to remember, he said, is that you're going to be operating in a legal business, so you're going to be faced with the constant threat of being closed down by the law and maybe even going to jail. Well, I sort of figured on keeping my business a secret except to customers and friends, I said. The chief snorted derisively. Little lady, the whole town's going to know about it in 24 hours after you open. There's no such thing as a secret whorehouse, believe me. If that's the case, I asked, how come Miss May's been able to stay open so long? Don't kid yourself, the chief said. Miss May's had more than her share of tangles with the law through the years. Even now, when the Holly Joes around town start putting on the heat about vice, I have to keep them happy by making a raid, arresting some of her girls, and closing the place down. What happens then? The chief shrugged his thick shoulders. Oh, Miss May comes down and pays the girls' fines, and she and the girls take a vacation. When the heat's off, they return to town and the house opens again. Miss May and the girls have lost a few bucks, and the customers have had to drive to Nashville or other places to get their jollies, but no one's really been hurt. It all sounds pretty silly to me, I said. I think you'd either let the place operate or close it down for good. The chief patiently explained that life in any town is not that simple. There's a lot of folks here, including myself, and some mighty important people who figure that Miss May's house is a real asset to the town. The way we look at it, she runs a high-class place that gives Clarksville a decent outlet for all kinds of sex urges. Her girls are clean, they get medical checkups every week, Miss May and her girls mind their own business and stay out of trouble. Why, there's, mo there's more hell raised at some homes around town on a Saturday night than there is at Miss May's in a year. Why bother to raise the raid the house if it's good for the town, I wanted to know. Little lady, the chief replied, you're going to find out that every town has got its more share, more than its share of holy joes, men and women who have nothing better to do than stew about the morals of other folks. Every once in a while, some crusader comes along and starts preaching about sin. Before you know it, all the holy joes are screaming about the cancer of vice destroying the town. They preach sermons, make speeches, write fiery letters to the editor, sign petitions, telephone the mayor, threaten to have his scalp at the next election. Pretty soon the politicians are scared and I get a phone call suggesting that I close down Miss May's house until the heat's off. So I raid the house, keep it closed for a few weeks, and the Holy Joes are happy again until the next time some crusader crawls out of the woodwork. It was a long speech, but coming from the chief of police, I was impressed. In fact, I was stricken with memories of sitting in church nodding virtuously as the preacher cried out against sin, alerting his congregation to the spreading threat of, our, of vice in our town. My, how goody-good I felt then, being a part of a war against immorality, even though, for the life of me, I couldn't think of a single palace of vice in Bowling Green except, perhaps, a couple of seedy joints frequented by the town's fast set. In later years, I fought my own wars against the Holy Joe's Crusaders. I would vividly remember the chief's accurate analysis of the conflicting forces within a community, part condoning and part condemning, that plagued the life of a madame and her girls.
On that evening, however, I was more concerned with any advice the chief might have on how I could go about winning friends and influencing people in the right places. That, it appeared to me, would have to be my first step in setting up business in Bowling Green or anywhere else. Again, the chief laid the cards on the table. As Miss May tells it, you want to open a house in Bowling Green, in your hometown, he said. Well, it's got its drawbacks and its advantages. You're going to shock a lot of people. They're going to feel that you've betrayed everything they stand for, and they're going to be howling for your head on a platter. But, on the other hand, you must know at least some people in important jobs, businessmen, politicians, lawyers, and the police. Maybe you can get some of them on your side. At least they'll know it's a local girl of good reputation setting up a house, not a stranger, or maybe some big city underworld syndicate. Then, the chief got down to specifics. Confirming my own grasp of the situation, he advised me first to talk with some important people I trusted and tell them of my plan so they wouldn't feel later I had tried to sneak over something behind their backs. Assure them it's going to be a high-class house with medical checkups for the girls, he said. Assure them you'll not let your girls gad about town when they're not working, that you'll keep your place as free from trouble as possible. If you do, the powers that might be, the powers that be might leave you alone, waiting to see how the town accepts your house. However, the chief cautioned me not to expect easy sailing. Aside from the Holy Joes, he said, there's always some law enforcement officials who operate strictly by the book who say that if a place is illegal, it should be closed, even if it isn't hurting the community. And, he warned, there isn't a madame in business who doesn't have to live with the problem of making payoffs. One thing you gotta remember, he said, never offer a payoff for a bribe. They either set you up as a sucker asking to be milked or insult some honest official who will really try to nail your hide to the wall. What if somebody demands a payoff, I asked. When that happens, the chief said, make damn sure your money's buying something of value. Make sure that the guy who's got his hand out really can produce what he claims he can, and never pay or do special favors for a cop on the beat or a vice squad detective who claims he can provide you with protection. That's a lot of crap. Cops at that level don't make policy. The chief had just finished his advice on payoffs when Miss May hurried into the room. I hate to interrupt you two, she said, but things are getting lively in the parlor tonight, and I thought Pauline might want to sit in on the fun. I scrambled hastily off the chief's lap and thanked him kindly for his bedtime story. He caught the sly fun poking in my remark immediately. So it was a bedtime story, was it? He chuckled. Little lady, you got a real sense of humor, and God knows you're going to need it. On that somewhat pessimistic note, the chief departed, and Miss May led me out into the hallway and route to the parlor, which even from a distance was echoing the blare of a jukebox and the sound of voices and laughter. We just started down the hall when the doorbell rang. Miss May halted me with a firm hand. Let's wait here until someone answers the door, she said. Some of our customers get jittery if there's many people around when they first come in. Seconds later, a lovely young brunette, dressed in an expensive, low-cut red gown that daringly accentuated her charms, hurried into the hall from the parlor and opened the door. She murmured a greeting, and two well-dressed men entered the house. I gasped with horror. My mouth flew open and my eyes bulged. I turned and ran for the stairway, almost knocking Miss May down in my panic-stricken flight. Miss May, after recovering her equilibrium, must have come rushing up the stairs directly behind me because I was still gasping from the exertion of my mad dash when she burst breathlessly into the room. "'Pauline, what in the world happened?' she asked, wide-eyed and pale. "'You almost knocked me down flat on my back when you took off. Are you sick?' "'My God, no, I'm not sick,' I exclaimed. "'I wish I were, though. I wish I were sick a thousand miles from here.' "'What in tarnation are you gibbering about, girl?' Miss May said. "'Talk some sense.' 
It's those men who came in. They're from Bowling Green, I said. I'll simply die if they find me here. Nonsense, Miss May retorted sharply. You're imagining things. Those two gentlemen are my best customers. They've come here for years, and they're from Guthrie, Kentucky. Guthrie Hill, I replied heatedly. If that's what they told you, they're a couple of champion liars. I've known them for years in Bowling Green. The short man is a prominent lawyer, and his buddy owns one of the richest farms in Warren County. They're both leading citizens in my hometown. My name's Mud if they catch me in here. Miss May erupted into a storm of laughter, no refined tittering, but real belly-deep guffaws. When she finally recovered, she managed to gasp, Why, those old reprobates! It's getting so you can't believe any more, anybody anymore. Then Miss May abruptly became serious. Pauline, you've just had another lesson, she said. Another lesson? What on earth do you mean? In the first place, Miss May replied, there's no need for you to be worried about what would happen if they saw you in this house. Believe me, honey, they'd be a sight more upset than you if they realized that you'd seen them here. And in the second place, if they say they're from Guthrie, Kentucky, when they come to my house, then they're from Guthrie, Kentucky. The customer's always right. No questions asked as long as he pays the bill and behaves. Having delivered this lecture in defense of the fibbing gentleman from Bowling Green, Miss May got down to the basic facts involved in the ethics of a whorehouse operation. A madame can be successful, she said, only if her customers know they can absolutely trust her to respect their privacy and keep their secrets. A lot of important men come through those doors, Miss May said. Just their being here is an admission that they've got problems at home, that they're lonely or they got some kind of hang-up that they can't gratify easily anywhere else. Some of these customers talk freely and honestly while they're here. Others, like your friends from Bowling Green, try to cover their tracks with phony names and phony stories, but whatever the case may be, these men pay a good price for the service they get, and in return, they know that the walls of this whorehouse, or any good whorehouse, will never talk. Despite Miss May's assurances that I had nothing to worry about, I at first resisted her efforts to talk me into venturing out of my room for a visit to the parlor. It was only after she convinced me that the boys from Bowling Green always spent the night with their two favorite girls, that there was no chance of seeing them downstairs again, that I reluctantly agreed to, enjoy, to join in the festivities going on below. I discovered there were actually four parlors, two large and two small. And on this night, they were all crowded with at least 20 customers, tricks, as they were called behind their back. Only three or four of the girls were there, mingling gaily with the throng while they waited to be picked up by some eager trick. The other girls evidently were busy upstairs. The smaller parlors each contained only a large jukebox with all the top hits of the day available for a quarter a record. The floors of these two rooms were slick and worn from years of dancing. These two large parlors were carpeted and far more luxurious. These rooms were furnished with sofas and lounge chairs and a variety of paintings decorated the walls. Adding to the creature comforts, there were several large soft drink machines, providing choices of soda pop at a quarter per bottle, and small bars complete with ice where customers who brought their own bottles could mix their highballs. The traffic between the downstairs and upstairs that night was brisk. Evidently, for the two, -time, two big-time spenders from Bowling Green, there were no all-night tricks. Evidently, except for the two big-time spenders from Bowling Green, there were no all-night tricks. Girls would leave the parlors quietly with customers in tow and be quickly replaced by girls who'd seen the latest tricks to the door, a polite custom which I learned Miss May insisted upon. Her motto was to spend your money or get out. 
But as long as a man was willing to put money in the jukeboxes and soft drink machines, a lucrative sideline income, and ultimately invest in female entertainment, he was to be treated royally as a welcome guest of the house. Thus, Miss May tolerated no hurry, wham-bam, thank you, sir, assembly line servicing by her girls. Each trick was treated like a very special person, receiving full value for his investment. Miss May's fees when times were tough and money scarce were $2 for a straight party, $5 for the specialty of the house, a trip around the world, in which the girl livened up the action with a bit of tongue-tickling love play. There was a time limit of 20 minutes per customer, and any extra time in the saddle cost more. Also, there were special fees for customers with more exotic tastes and sex, ranging as high as $50 or more for some brands of offbeat hang-ups. Actually, a smart girl, by skillfully manipulating the sex urges of a trick and artfully catering to the male's ego, could frequently parlay the basic fee into a sizable payment, including at times a generous tip which Miss May, as operator of the house, shared on her customary 50-50 split of all money received. But don't you have a problem of the girls trying to hold back on this extra money without giving you a share? I asked after Miss May briefed me on the financial facts of life in a whorehouse while we sat in one of the parlors watching things going on. Miss May's blue eyes sparkled frostily behind her steel-rimmed glasses. She may have had, she may have looked like a gentle, gracious grandmother, but behind that mild facade dwelt a hard-headed businesswoman with a heart of pure dollar signs. She could be generous, friendly, and helpful, as she was with me, but not when her bank account was involved. Sure, she said. Once in a while I get stuck with a bad apple who tries to double-cross me, but she doesn't last long. Any madame who's on the ball knows her customers, their hang-ups, and their spending habits. Also, the girls talk and the tricks talk, and pretty soon you know something's dead wrong with the girls' arith girls arithmetic. So you give her a quick heave-ho and get another girl. Before long, the world gets around that cheating doesn't pay. A high-class house like this can be a gold mine for a girl. If they have any sense, they won't risk their jobs for a few quick bucks. Another time during the lengthening night, when Miss May took time out for mixing with the tricks to brief me on her operations, I pointed out that several of the customers seemed content to just sit around and talk without making a trip upstairs with one of the girls. Talk is cheap, I said. Isn't it a losing proposition having these guys around gabbing? Indeed not, Miss May explained. A lot of my good customers are lonely men. Most times they pick out their favorite girl, but sometimes they come here just to be with people, to talk, to laugh, and joke. They play records and buy drinks, and lots of times they give me a nice tip when they leave. But I never charge them for just visiting. I want them to feel welcome, and it pays off in the long run. However, Miss May quickly added, this hospitality applied only to good customers, not to Johnny-come-lately characters who tried to loaf around the parlors, dance with the girls, and get their kicks by copping a few free feels. That kind of cheapskate gets a quick rush. I told him to invest in the merchandise or get out. It was nearly three in the morning when I decided to cut short my apprentice training in the parlor and get some sleep. Several more of the girls had vanished upstairs, apparently bedded down with all-nighters, but even at this late hour, customers were still arriving and departing in a steady flow that added up to a big Saturday night gate for Miss May and her girls. For the first hour or two, I tried to keep count of the traffic, but I soon gave up attempting to add up the take. Nevertheless, I knew that Miss May's receipts for the night were fantastic, and visions of a similar untapped bonanza waiting for me in Bowling Green danced through my head as I giddily snuggled down in bed. Except for the all-night tricks, who generally depart discreetly in the dawn's early light, there are no early risers in a whorehouse. 
It was almost noon when the first signs of life began stirring in Miss May's sex emporium on that bright summer Sunday so long ago. I'd been awake for some time, spinning wild fantasies about my approaching madamehood, when a maid knocked on my door and announced cheerfully that breakfast would be served in the kitchen in a half hour. Unlike dinner the previous evening at which Miss Day's dining room had an unreal atmosphere of a finishing school for proper ladies, breakfast was an informal, hilarious affair. The girls, hair rumpled and without makeup, straggled sleepy-eyed into the big kitchen, clad in a variety of robes and kimonos which did nothing for their now-dormant sex-pot images. However, although the exotic sirens of the night now looked like an ordinary gaggle of females trying to collect their energy for another day's vicissitudes, their conversation was earthy and liberally spiced with gossip and bawdy recollections of the previous evening's business. Startled by this transformation, I couldn't help think, as I listened to the breakfast table chatter, that Miss May's skilled courtesans were no different than a group of schoolgirls giggling over the latest wicked tidbits about teenage misadventures. It's lucky for a lot of men that this kind of talk doesn't get beyond these walls, I told myself as the girls merely exchanged fascinating information about the tricks they had serviced. With devastating frankness, they discussed the sexual capabilities and shortcomings of the various customers. So-and-so was hung like a horse, absolutely enormous darling. Young Sammy W., the son of a town attorney, had set a new track record by ringing the gong in 15 seconds flat. Old Mr. C., once the town's number one stud, had labored valiantly but futilely for two hours, trying to generate new life in his obsolete equipment, and had left dejectedly after self-consciously doling out $40 as a tip for, to compensate for his date's disappointment. Believe me, I earned that tip, the plump little blonde who had serviced Mr. C. exclaimed. I worked and worked and worked over that old goat. Tried everything I knew, but there wasn't any signs of life. I'm sure sorry to hear that, Miss May sighed. He used to be one of our big spenders. Lots of times he'd take on three or four girls a night, but now I guess we won't be seeing as much of him anymore. However, the prize breakfast table anecdote was supplied by Judy, a tall, sensuous redhead with remarkable chest dimensions. Maybe some of you missed it, but the poodle man paid us another visit last night, she said during a lull in the conversation. That bit of news touched off a flurry giggling around the kitchen table. Did he, do, did he go for the same routine, Miss May inquired? He sure did. That's the damnedest dog I've ever seen. It sure is, another girl who evidently had memories of servicing the poodle man on other occasions observed. Maybe you ought to hire that dog, Miss May. It could make you a fortune. Well, now that's an idea, Miss May said, half joking and half serious. I've never heard of a house with such a talented dog. Hey, a slender brunette named Clariot. Clara exclaimed in mock alarm. I don't want to compete with a dog. The table rocked with a new outburst of mirth. Miss May, apparently seeing the puzzled look on my face, put a stop to the tittering. Pauline doesn't know what in the world we're talking about, she said. You'd better tell him about your poodle man. The redhead told her story with gusto. The customer in question, a well-to-do businessman from Nashville, had been showing up at Miss May's house regular as clockwork every other Saturday night for at least three years, and, without fail, he was accompanied by a thoroughbred poodle named Fifi, with the traditional dainty fur collar and, as subsequent action disclosed, a lusty, amorous appetite. The poodle always comes upstairs with us, the redhead explained. When we get in the room, the mutt sits by the bed, panting and leering like a nasty old man, while we get ready for our party. When the action starts, that damn dog begins marking, whining, barking, whining, and scratching at the bed and pacing the floor like some kind of sex maniac. 
Evidently, visions of the Poodle Man's strange hang-up were vividly clear and excruciatingly funny, for the redhead's tale was interrupted by... a new outburst of laughter. Finally, she managed to regain her composure and continue her story. You've never really lived until you've had a party with the Poodle Man. With that excited mutt yapping and scratching and jumping around the room, it's like trying to screw in the middle of a dog pound, and the fun really starts after the Poodle Man shoots his wad. Assuring me that it was true, even though I probably would find it hard to believe, the redhead described in language that left little to the imagination how this particular trick got his real kicks. After performing proficiently and normally in the bed, the customer quickly prepared for his odd encore. Climbing off the bed, he sat on a nearby stool with his legs spraddled to provide easy access to his now deflated manhood. At this point, Fifi eagerly leaped into action. So help me, the redhead said. That mutt's got a real educated tongue. It licks and nuzzles and sucks until the trick has a brand new erection and gets his jollies all over again the funniest sight I've ever seen. That damn dog has a real genuine talent for Frenching. It was early afternoon by the time the story of the Poodle Man was finished. The girls returned to their rooms and rest and began leisurely preparations for the generally light Sunday afternoon and evening trade. With the train for Bowling Green due to depart in a few hours, Miss May took me back to the library for a final briefing on the problems of starting and running a brothel. During this heart-to-heart -heart session, I leveled completely with Miss May, telling her all about my background as a nice girl, a respectable matron, and a divorced mother of two young sons. I told her about my struggles to earn a living and even confessed that to help finance my tri trip to Clarksville, I had peddled a pair of stockings and a bottle of perfume to a fellow passenger by convincing him they would make a nice returning home gift for his wife. At this mention of finances, or the lack thereof, Miss May's dollar instincts were alerted. Honey, she said suspiciously, I sure hope you aren't planning to hit me for a loan. I don't mind helping you with all the advice I can give. Advice doesn't cost anything, but if you got any ideas about me bankrolling a house for you, forget it. I was indignant, for such an idea had never entered my head. I had no intention of asking you for a red cent, I fumed. If I need money, I've got friends in Bowling Green. I just came here to learn something about this business because I don't know where else to turn. Mollified by my heated assurance that I had no designs on her bankroll, Miss May quickly reverted to her friendly, helpful grandmother role. Don't get on your high horse, honey, she said. I just wanted to make sure. Now let's get down to business. First, she reassured me that it didn't take a fortune to start a house on a modest scale, recalling that when she went into business, she had to prop bed springs and mattresses on empty Coca-Cola cases because she couldn't afford the cost of regular beds. Then she bluntly told me of the drawbacks beyond a shortage of cash that I faced it as an aspiring madame. I can't ever recall hearing a woman with your kind of background getting into the business of running a whorehouse, she said. Make no mistake, it's a rough and tough business. Mostly madams are women who are set up in a house by a racketeering boyfriend or their pimp or, like me, prostitutes who are smart enough to get off the mattress and start throwing operations with a stable of girls to do the work. Also, echoing the police chief's earlier warning, Miss May questioned the wisdom of opening a house in my hometown. You're going to be hurt, and hurt bad by your family and friends, she said. If you can develop a thick skin, though, you'll eventually realize that the money and the security it brings can make up for a lot of the heartache. 
With that little sermon off her chest, Miss May devoted the next hour to discussing a lot of the basic details involved in operating a house. How to find your first-class prostitutes, how to quietly but effectively publicize your house, how to set up a profitable schedule of fees, how to arrange a fair cut of the receipts, how to keep peace among a collection of temperamental girls and among the customers, how to cope with a number of other problems which regularly confront a madame. Indeed, Miss May, more happy than other per- more than any other person in my life, taught me how to make money. Unhappily, though, she neglected to teach me how to save it. At last, with my head bulging with new and enlightened information, I said my, gr- my goodbyes, and heartened by the well wishes of Miss May and her girls, headed back to Bowling Green. As the train started out that Sunday afternoon, I leaned back in my seat and let my dreams run wild. I was sure that I was heading for an instant fortune, sure that Miss May's formula for success I now knew just about everything one needed to know about becoming a madame. What an innocent lost lamb I was at that point. For long I was just gonna find I was gonna find out just how wrong I was.